scripture reading for today comes from Acts 21, 7 through 14. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good to see you all again. Um, if you do have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 21. And we'll be in Acts 21 through 22 this morning. Um, and, and, if, and if you're new with us, again, we're glad you're here. Uh, we've been journeying through the book of Acts for the last nine years, I think. Um, but it's really been a joy to be in this book. Um, but we come to a really remarkable point in the missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, but before we jump in, uh, I wanted to share just by way of introduction, uh, just a moment in history. On, on April 16th, 1963, uh, in, inside a small jail cell, and, and on the, the margins of a smuggled-in newspaper, uh, one of the most significant pieces of, of literature was written uh, in American history. And, and it's a piece of literature that, that not only show, it's not only a remarkable piece of American history, but it's an example of grace under pressure, uh, of, of persistence under opposition, uh, and, under, and the understanding of courage under fire. And, and it's Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail that perhaps you've read, uh, but in this letter, Dr. King was writing and explaining the reason for why he was in Birmingham. He was seeking to pursue justice and reconciliation and peace among the blacks and the whites in our nation at this time. He was giving justification for why he was there and why he was engaging in his version of nonviolent protest. And in his letter, King penned these words explaining the reason for his place in Birmingham. And he says, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Now, Dr. King, if you're familiar with his story, obviously he faced great opposition, both from his, his critics and his opponents, but also from his peers. There were those who thought he was too bold in his proclamation and some who thought he wasn't bold enough. And, and, and as we see and understand his story, and yet as he faced this opposition, he was persistent in moving forward in the mission that he felt called to. And, and I couldn't help, the reason I'm sharing this story is I couldn't help but think about Dr. King's letter, which if you've never read, I encourage you to read, but I couldn't help but think of his letter as I was studying the text this morning of Acts chapter 21 and 22. As we see in this text, we see the story of the Apostle Paul, the very man that, that Dr. King humbly compared himself to. Uh, we see Paul facing an opposition that, that seems completely impossible, 
that would, in, in every right mind, convince someone to stop and retreat and maybe reconsider the path that they're on. But instead, Paul persists and moves forward knowing full well what it will cost him because he sees no other option other than to continue so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might spread to the ends of the earth. And as we come to this point in the book of Acts, we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, being sent to opposition in a very unique way. Because he's not just sent to opposition, he's sent to an opposition he knows full well is something that is going to be utterly difficult and seemingly impossible from his vantage point. And as we look at the Apostle Paul's opposition, I want us to kind of think about our own place of how do we face opposition. We all, regardless of our faith journey or spiritual spectrum, wherever we are, we all face various forms of opposition. And the question is, what do we do in those moments when we know what it will cost us to persist, uh, when we know that, that some of, uh, of our greatest allies are actually some of our greatest opponents, when we seek to take the high ground and it doesn't seem to work, what do we do when we face opposition? And that's what I want us to look at as we, as we kind of journey through Acts 21 and 22. But before we jump into the text, I want to pray for our time uh, that the Lord would bless the teaching of his words. So let's take a moment to pray together. Father in heaven, we pause in this moment to ask for your spirit to bless the teaching of your word. Lord, I do ask that you would show us the, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has captivated and transformed so many lives and hearts. Lord, may we see in the story of the Apostle Paul in his ability to be sent to opposition, that he does so knowing the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, may that truth come to bear in our hearts this morning, and may it transform how we live and function in this world. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So, uh, a little kind of context, uh, if, in case you haven't been following around in Acts. So, Paul has just said his farewell speech uh, to the Ephesian elders. And so, there's a group of, of people who Paul has been committed to, and they're very devoted and committed to him and to the mission of the church. And, and Paul leaves them, and he basically uh, moves on to Caesarea. He, that's the journey he's moving towards. But, but he makes a little pit stop in the city of Tyre with, with his missionary buddies, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, being one of them. So they stop in Tyre, you know, to charge their phones, do some laundry, buy some corn nuts, you know, like for good, good road trip stuff. But while they're there, Paul interacts with some of the disciples in the city and who basically plead with him to not go. They don't want him to go into Jerusalem because they see, they know that what awaits him is affliction and imprisonment. And Paul says, thanks, but no thanks, and continues on his journey anyway. And, and he and his entourage, they enter into uh, Caesarea, and, and they experience actually something very similar that they did in the city of Tyre, that these disciples that they gather with, you know, Paul actually he connects with uh, Philip, one of these uh, uh, people in the story of Acts that we've seen earlier. And Paul is hoping for maybe a fun little reunion, you know, swapping stories of missionary journeys, the time, you know, when Luke got sick on the boat ride to Syria. Like, he's, he's waiting and hoping for some kind of fun family reunion. But instead, the disciples in Caesarea similarly try to convince Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And, and what happens is there's this prophet named Agabus who comes to Paul and basically says, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be imprisoned. This is going to happen. And, and the brothers and sisters in Caesarea plead with Paul to not go. And Paul responds. It's really interesting how he responds because you kind of get a, a little insight into Paul's heart because Paul tends to be kind of pigeonholed as this kind of jerk. He's kind of cold. But you see the warmth of his heart here as the love of his friends speaks to him. And in verse 13, we read these words. It says, Then Paul answered, 
What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so clearly, I mean, you see in Paul's words, I mean, he's not just this cold, callous person, like, I don't care about you, I'm just preaching the gospel. Like, he, I mean, there's a deep emotion here. In fact, the word that, that, that Luke uses in saying breaking his heart, it's a word that's used to describe the beating of clothes uh, when you're cleaning them. And, and so, so you can basically translate this as saying that, that Paul's friends are, are pounding upon Paul's emotions. And he's feeling the weight of this. His friends are telling him, don't go, Paul. And Paul wants to listen to them, but instead, he chooses to follow the will of God, even though it means breaking his heart and the hearts of his friends. And so in this first part of our story here, we we see something unique about the way in which Paul faces opposition, because part of his opposition is actually his friends, his peers, his loved ones. And so as we look at this, I want us to step back and consider how do we face opposition in situations similar to this. And what I would suggest is that when we face opposition, we should for sure listen to our friends, but follow God's will. We should listen to our friends for sure, but we should follow God's will. And so absolutely, there's wisdom in seeking the counsel and the guidance of friends and loved ones, people that know us well, people that we trust, and yet we must be careful because it's true. I mean, like we should not be the only voice that speaks into our lives. Our voice should not be the only voice that weighs in on major decisions in our life. And yet there is often the case, and I'm sure some of us can attest to this, that sometimes the best intentions of our best friends can, in some instances, keep us from the best things that God wants for us. Even though what our friends are advising us in may be good things, they might be guarding us or keeping us from something that is truly best in accordance with God's design. And so perhaps it's maybe guidance or counsel that you've received from a friend about about a job, about a college major, about a relationship. And while while all three of these things are not necessarily bad, perhaps the advice that's being given is very narrow-minded or one-sided or not totally wise. Perhaps the advice you're given is that you should take this job because because of the pay, or you should pursue this major because it's safe, or you should date this guy because he's got a Camaro, or whatever, like whatever the advice is, like those aren't bad things, but they're very limited and narrow. And so perhaps, and, and, and thinking back to Dr. King's example, as you remember, I mean, some of his opposition was not necessarily, as he says in his letter, the white clansman, but actually his white clergyman brother who called him brother. And so some of his opposition were those who were close to him and were in the same line of work, so to speak. Sometimes the barrier standing in our way of the good life is actually the good-intentioned advice of good friends that aren't necessarily thinking about God's will first and foremost. Again, they may not be deluded or they may not be trying to dissuade you from God's will, but they may not be thinking in terms of what is truly best for us. If we desire to pursue the good life, which again, regardless of what you believe about God, about Christianity, or about Jesus or the Bible, we would all desire to live the good life, whatever that is. How we define the good life is really up for discussion, but, but we would all say we want to pursue the good life. And if in our pursuit of the good life, it will for sure, it will, it will not be absent from the input and advice of good friends. But it for sure will not be found if we fail to align ourselves with God's will and his design for our life. 
Which is why, I mean, as a church, one of the, the deep values we have is the Scripture, the Bible. We, we value the Bible not just because it has great moral lessons and religious stories. We value the Bible because it is God's infinite Word to us that lays out for us His good character and nature that also shows us what, what the good life is in accordance with His design. We don't just teach the Bible because it's kind of motivating and inspirational, but we, but we believe it has modern wisdom for our world and for our life as we seek to live this good life. I truly believe that we can't, we can't fully know the good life without knowing the will of God. And I don't think we can know the will of God without knowing His Word. And so that would be something I would encourage you to, to find time in. How do we find ourselves in God's Word? If we want to seek the good life, I mean, how do we know what the good life is? Is it really just my own perception that's seasoned with some of the advice of my friends? What is the standard by which we determine what is ultimately best in this world? And so, yes, we should be people who seek the counsel and wisdom of our friends, but we should also do so as we seek to live under the will of God. So, as the story continues, we see Paul's opposition continues to grow and increase. The stakes get higher as he actually enters into Jerusalem. And so Paul makes his way to Jerusalem, and what we see is that he, he meets up with James, who's, who's the leader of the Jerusalem church, also the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, so he's got a pretty impressive resume. Uh, so James and the elders of Jerusalem meet with Paul, and they're excited to see him, but they're also kind of anxious because they know that Paul's presence in Jerusalem has kind of created a stir within the Jewish community. Or to put it nicely, like Paul's approval rating is very low within the Jewish community in Jerusalem. And James and the elders inform Paul uh, that the Jews in the city in Jerusalem, they have been told about you. And verse 21 says, they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So the Jews in Jerusalem, they're, like, they're, they're far from planning like a lamb chop tailgate for Paul. Okay? Like they're not really excited to have him here. His presence has created some tension because they see Paul not just as a person who's proclaiming this message of Jesus the Messiah, which they don't believe, but they have interpreted this to mean that Paul is saying, abandon everything about being Jewish. It's completely insignificant, which is a bit of a stretch to describe Paul's view of the Old Testament law. And so they need a plan. How do they plan to have Paul proclaim the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem? And the plan is basically for Paul to take these four men and go to the temple and, and participate in this ceremonial purification process that's uh, aligned with and consistent with the Mosaic law. And perhaps that this will be a, an act of kind of showing common ground with the Jewish people that perhaps they will be willing to listen to Paul as he speaks about Jesus the Messiah. Now, it's important to note that Paul, Paul is not compromising his beliefs here. He's not suspending grace and going back to the law. He's not compromising his theology, and this is not a, a gospel dilution of any kind. But rather, Paul is employing this kind of cultural sensitivity so that he can establish a common ground with the Jewish community. Very similar, if you remember, in Acts 17, when Paul went to Athens and engaged with the pagans there and spoke their language. He is establishing common ground and being culturally sensitive. And so as we see Paul preparing for this great opposition among the Jews, we, we see another posture that I think we should embrace 
when we face opposition. And this is a posture, again, regardless of your religious background, I think should apply to all of us. And that is this, that when we face opposition, we should challenge our opponents for sure, but meet them where they are. We should challenge our opponents for sure, but meet them where they are. So so Paul is fully prepared to confront the Jews and to challenge them in their views of the Old Testament law and of Jesus the Messiah. And yet he does so by suspending some of his own freedom as a Christian. Because Paul, he he no longer has to find and establish righteousness through obedience to the law perfectly. He is righteous in Jesus, but Paul chooses to engage in this Mosaic law ceremony as a way to establish some common ground. He is adapting his his approach to the Jews in order to work towards this goal of uniting the Jews and the Gentiles together in Christ. Again, going back to Dr. King's example, very similarly as we think about the opposition he faced. He was similarly critiqued by his peers for not being bold enough, and he was critiqued by by some of his opponents by being too bold. And yet, he was willing to suspend some of his freedom and comfort in going to Birmingham to challenge both audiences, his peers and his critics, by suspending his own freedom for the hope of blacks and whites to be united together. And so in the examples of both Dr. King and the Apostle Paul, we see a posture of both bold love and a humble confidence, as they, which enabled them to challenge their opponents that, that disagreed with them while meeting them where they, where they were. And they were able to do this because they saw their opponents not as enemies to defeat, but as people to know and love. And that is so vital for us. That if we have people in our lives, if we have people in our lives that we disagree with, are we able to see them not as enemies to defeat, but as people to know and love? And if I could recommend a phenomenal book, uh, it's called How to Think by Alan Jacobs. And Dr. Alan Jacobs, who's a theologian, uh, wrote this book. It's a phenomenal resource I would commend to all of you. But in it, he says this. He has these wise words. He says, we lose something of our humanity by militarizing discussion and debate. We lose something of our humanity by demonizing our opponents. When people cease to be people because they are, to us, merely representatives or mouthpieces of positions we want to eradicate, then we, in our zeal to win, have sacrificed empathy. We have declined the opportunity to understand other people's desires, principles, and fears. And that is a great price to pay for supposed victory in debate. Isn't that brilliant and utterly convicting at the exact same time? I mean, this should be something that describes us, whether you're a Christian or not. We should be people who have, yes, the ability to challenge those that we disagree with, but to do so with a a loving posture, with humility and an understanding. Can we do so? Can this be described of us, whether you're a Christian or not? Can we disagree? Can we challenge while also meeting our opponents where they are. But as the story unfolds, and as we see Paul's plan that that James and the elders put together, uh, it actually doesn't go the way they had hoped. 
And so what we see is that Paul, while he's in the temple, he's, he's attacked, he's falsely accused by the Jews there. Uh, he, he is the victim uh, of injustice through the, this, this kind of miscarriage of justice through this kind of kangaroo court system. And, and he is brought before his accusers and his attackers to defend himself. And, and, and we see in, the, in chapter 22, Paul, he has this opportunity to defend himself. And what does he do? I love it. He takes the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. But he, but he does so with, still with this loving posture. I mean, these people that he's speaking to are those that have attacked him, accused him, and have, have tortured him. And yet he's able to speak to them with a humility and a love that is beyond understanding. And so Paul, he just kind of unpacks for them his, his journey of faith. He talks about who he was as a Pharisee, as a persecutor of the church. He talks about how he encountered the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and how he became the, 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 the apostle to the Gentiles. And it is at this moment when the crowd loses it. When Paul starts to talk about loving Gentiles, the Jews cannot stand it. And so at this moment, Paul is, is ushered away uh, by, by these Roman soldiers and they're, they're by, by command of the tribune there, and he's sent away to the barracks and he's, he's to be flogged and beaten. And, and as they have him stretched up, and more than likely he's kind of stretched uh, uh, vertically like this, as they're about to beat him, it's just this kind of interesting moment. Paul kind of leans to the Roman soldier and says, you wouldn't hurt a Roman citizen now, would you? Like, that's kind of how I read it, essentially. And Paul, and, and right then, this Roman centurion is just like, what in the world? You're a Roman citizen? And so he goes to the tribune because he knows that this, if he's truly a Roman citizen, we cannot treat him in this way. And, and this is a big deal because, I mean, certain privileges were allowed to and afforded to Roman citizens, especially when it came to matters of litigation and punishment. And so, so, so then the tribune comes down and he investigates, and sure enough, Paul is a Roman citizen. And so they're freaking out because they should not have been treating a Roman citizen in this way. Now, at face value, this looks like Paul is just kind of cashing in his Roman citizenship card as a way to protect himself and get out of a sticky situation. And, and, and if Acts ended at chapter 22, I wouldn't fault you for coming to that conclusion. But as we see, Paul is actually appealing to his Roman citizenship not to save himself, but so that he can get to Rome. And, and that's actually what we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts, which we explore, is that Paul's aim here is to try to get to Rome. Why? Because Rome at that time is the center of the known world. And Paul wants the gospel to get to Rome so that it can spread to the ends of the earth. Far from this being an act of self-preservation, Paul is actually employing this strategic move to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And doing so knowing that it will come to great, with great cost to himself and great difficulty and pain. And so as we step back and look at, at Paul's uh, use of his Roman citizenship, as we think about as he's facing opposition and he cashes in on this card, we should ask ourselves the question again, when we face opposition, what can be learned from Paul's interaction here? When we face opposition, we should recognize our privilege, but use it for others. We should recognize our privilege, but use it for others. And, and, and I, let, me, let me just say, the word privilege has, is a loaded word in our culture, for sure. And, and there's a lot of confusion about what that word means. So let me, let me offer a helpful definition. Uh, Andy Crouch offers this from his book, Playing God, which is a phenomenal book. I would highly recommend it to you. Uh, but Andy Crouch says this in defining privilege. He says, privilege is the ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power. 
privileges the ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power. And, and Crouch goes on to say, just to give a little bit more coloring here, he says, privilege is the name for all the good things we do not need to try to acquire because they simply flow to us as a result of past exercises of power. And so it's, it's important to know, like, privilege, it, it has this loaded word. It, we sometimes hear it and think of it as a bad word. It's not a bad word. It's not a bad concept. But like all things in life, privilege and the various privileges we have have the potential for both good and evil. The question is, do we recognize them and do we steward them in purposes that are for the good of others and ideally for the kingdom of God? And what I would say is that regardless of, regardless of your income level, regardless of your age, regardless of your socioeconomic status or your ethnicity, we, we all have various privileges. We all have various privileges. The question is, are we aware of them and do we steward them in proper ways? Some of us, uh, you know, have maybe have the privilege of intelligence, uh, which, is a, which is a phenomenal ability that has the power to, to educate and to, and to uh, better someone else's lives. It has the ability to provide instruction and insight, and yet it also has the ability to condescend and to humiliate others and to put others down because you know that you're smarter than them. Some of us may have the privilege of, of finances, which has the power to, uh, to provide great economic capacity for individuals or institutions or even, even nations to be uh, brought out of poverty. It has the ability to fund meaningful initiatives. It has the ability to create new um, uh, financial endeavors and businesses. And yet it also has the power to corrupt us and control us. Or, or maybe, maybe you think of your, your, your privilege in terms of the skills you have. Even as Jonathan was talking about with like our, our care teams of the helping hands, like perhaps your privilege is a certain skill that is developed, and, and that is a great ability to, to bless others, to serve others, to maybe train others, but it also has the ability, similar to intelligence, to say, my skill set is here and yours is down here, and it elevates us and it can boost our ego. It has the ability to do both. The question is, are we aware of it? And so when, when you and I when we encounter people who maybe the culture would say that this person is your enemy, this person is your opponent, when we encounter these people, is it our default, is it our primary posture to use our privileges for self-preservation at best or a weapon of attack at worst? When we think about as we're engaging with people who we disagree with, what is our pr primary posture when it comes to the various privileges we have? Do we use them for self-preservation or attack, or do we use them like Paul when he was face-to-face -face with his accusers and attackers? He chose to use it as a way that would bring about the greatest good to all people, namely the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul utilizing his privilege as a Roman citizen in this moment is an act that actually benefits us today. Because his work, by doing so, it brought him to Rome and it allowed the gospel to spread from there that we are partakers of. And, and I, can't, I can't help but ask the question, when we look at the way in which Paul faced such amazing opposition, both the opposition of his peers as well as his opponents, I can't help but ask the question, what is it that empowered him? What is it that enabled him to, to listen to his friends but still trust the will of God, to, to confront and challenge his opponents but to meet them where they were, and to recognize his privileges and yet use them for the good of others? I think the answer to that question is an answer that the, the author of, of Acts, Luke, knows very well. 
And I think the answer is found in the way in which Luke records this story of Paul in particular. In the way in which uh, Luke is showing this amazing parallelism between Paul and the one he proclaimed. You see, just like Jesus, Paul faced great opposition from the religious leaders who plotted against him. Just like Jesus, Paul was arrested under trumped-up charges and was the victim of litigious injustice. Just like Jesus, Paul was able to show compassion and patience towards his accusers and attackers. Just like Jesus, Paul was advised by his friends to not go to Jerusalem. Just like Jesus, Paul modeled steadfast diligence and determination amidst deep emotional and physical pain. And just like Jesus, Paul chose to follow God's will for his life even though it meant great personal cost to himself. Paul knew exactly what following Jesus would cost him. He knew it. He didn't have to be told by Agabus, bro, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get imprisoned and beaten up. Like, thanks, Aggie, tell me something I don't know. He knew that and yet persisted and moved forward. Why? Because he knew the cost of following Jesus. And he knew that it was worth it. But maybe, and maybe even more importantly, Paul also knew the the greater cost of not following Jesus, of not moving forward. That perhaps Paul understood the weight that was upon his shoulders and the significance of this mission of getting the gospel to Rome. And so Paul for sure weighed the cost of following Jesus. And he was able to face such opposition and declare, as, as we heard earlier, that he said, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I believe Paul was able to declare that and to face opposition with such grace and compassion and humility and service because he knew the truth of the words that his Messiah declared in Matthew 16, that Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think Paul knew these words, and he didn't just know them on an intellectual level. It it formed and shaped his very identity, which compelled him to face opposition. Thanks be to God. As As we think about Paul's example, yes, it's beautiful to see the way in which he faced opposition, but he was able to do so because he trusted the one who faced the greatest opposition on our behalf. What a blessing it is that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father Instead of listening to his friends, he went to the cross on our behalf. Thanks be to God that that Jesus, he challenges his opponents, namely you and me, and yet does so by meeting us where we are. And thanks be to God that Jesus was fully aware of his power and his privilege as the Son of God, and yet did not hold it and consider it something, as Paul says in Philippians 2, a thing to be grasped or hoarded or held for himself, but he suspended his privilege and power for the good of others, by becoming a servant and suffering on a Roman cross so that we would not have to, that Jesus became the penalty for us, that we might receive the blessing of new life. When this is our story, we can face any opposition. The question is, is it your story? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, I don't admit to know just where where all of us are in our journey of faith, in our understanding of you, 
But Lord, I also know that, that regardless of the oppositions and the difficulties and trials we face, Lord, you know them. You have experienced them. You became them for us. And to bring a victory, yes, over our trials, over our pains and hurts, but ultimately over that which plagues all of us, namely sin and death itself. Lord Jesus, the greatest enemy we face has been defeated in you. And so, Lord, I do ask that you would, in this moment, through your spirit, would you awaken us to the power and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that that shows us that, yes, while there are difficulties and trials and pains in this life, we have an ability to face these things with a hope and a confidence that goes beyond the grave because, Jesus, you have defeated our greatest enemy. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us in this moment, prepare us and equip us to be a people who are able to listen to our friends but follow your will, who are able to challenge our opponents but meet them where they are, and who are able to recognize our privileges but steward them for the good of others because you have done that for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, may that be so of all of us. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. It has been a pleasure to worship with you here this morning. And as um, we leave today, I just want to remind you about the fall launch going on out there in the lobby. Stop by if you'd like to get plugged in. There's lots of places where you can serve or join or help others. And so just stop by any of those tables out there to get more information. And now as we leave the church gathered to be this church scattered, May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that by which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.